Father in heaven, we thank thee for this opportunity now again to open thy rich, life-giving word. Dear Father, we want to approach it with, with reverence, with humility, dear Father, knowing we, we need thee and we are not able and sufficient of ourselves. But dear Father, we know that as we've read this morning, all the riches that we have in Christ Jesus, they're available right here and now. And in a special way, the Son of God is with us as we gather together in his name. Dear Father, we ask for thy blessing to be upon us, on each one, all the various needs, which thou dost know completely even more than the individuals that are here know themselves. Thou dost know each one of us and what we need. Thy word is perfect. It is complete, dear Father. And we trust through the moving of the Holy Spirit that thou wilt supply those needs. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to continue in 2 Corinthians, the second half of chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Starting with verse 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. I am become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me, for I ought to have been commended of you. For in nothing am I behind the very chiefest apostles, though I be nothing. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. For what is it wherein ye were inferior to other churches, except that it be that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours, but you. For the children ought not to lay up for their parents, but the parents for the children. And I will very gladly spend and be spent for you, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. But be it so, I did not burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you with guile. Did I make a gain of you by any of them which I sent unto you? I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walked we not in the same spirit? Walked we not in the same steps? Again, think ye that we excuse ourselves unto you? We speak before God in Christ. But we do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. For I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I would, and that I shall be found unto you such as ye would not, lest there be debates, envyings, wraths, strifes, backbitings, whisperings, swellings, tumults, and lest when I come again my God will humble me among you. And that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. I'll end with the end of chapter 12. May God bless the reading of his word. 
We read the words of the same author, physical author, this morning, and it was a different tone, wasn't it, from Colossians 1. What we read in Colossians 1 was like music in a major key, bright and triumphant and and glorious. And here we read something that's heavy and, 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 and hard to read in a minor key, as it were, maybe slow and ponderous. But it's really the same song. It's the same music that's being sung. It's the song of love. The song of the Apostle Paul, the song that he's singing in Christ to this church at Corinth that needs to hear these things. Think back at the beginning of the epistle. He started out softly with comfort and and encouragement and and, and shared them the glorious plan of salvation. And uh, he covered so much ground in this epistle. But now at the end, the the second half of this chapter and the last chapter, it gets quite heavy. And he he comes right out and says exactly what's going to happen, what he's going to do in that church if things are not resolved, if there is not a response. Sometimes that's what love has to do, isn't it? It's got to speak hard truth, things that are not easy to hear. And Paul, through the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, he has been building up to this point. He's been, the the whole epistle, he's been laying the foundation so they understand, they see where he's from, what his heart, what he's striving for, his ministry in the gospel, how passionate he is. They, They found out probably more in this epistle, more personal details than maybe even he shared when he was present with them. He's really opened himself up to get to this point, to give them that final warning. You know, the transition point here, in this, we, how we started in verse 11 was, remember all this, this, this foolish boasting, as he says, quote-unquote, foolish boasting that he had to do, this, this comparison he had to make with these false apostles, these, these false teachers that were disrupting the church, that were misleading it, among all of their other problems and challenges and, and difficulties that they had, some of which are referenced here at the end. Remember, he comes from that. He says, I have become a fool in glorying. Ye have compelled me. It's almost like he's saying, look at what you made me do. I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to talk all about myself. And yet, I've had to do that. You have compelled me. You know, it shouldn't have been this way. Truly, the signs of an apostle were wrought among you. We can read about it in Acts, maybe not specifically in Corinth, but in other cities, and I'm sure many, he did similar things in Corinth. Miraculous things. Things like touching a handkerchief, a cloth, and that being taken to the sick person and then being healed. You remember what happened when he was preaching that long, long, uh, into the midnight hours, and there was that young man sleeping If ever there's a warning against sleeping in a service, here it is. Sleeping on the windowsill, probably. Fall out, and he was taken up dead. And Paul says, don't worry, he's not. He's not dead. Miraculous, amazing things. This was part of God's plan. This is clear. Christ said it at the beginning. He says, 
in, in the end of Mark, he says, what's going to happen? You're going to show these signs and wonders. And it's, and, uh, it's, it's going to be clear evidence. And it was right and good where the word of God came for the first time. Think about it. To these, not only to the Jewish people who knew the Bible and, and knew this, uh, this um, lineage, not lineage, um, this heritage of, of miracles, you know, the Old Testament prophets, they did miracles and they could confirm to them this is in the same pattern, the same God who is doing these things miraculously now. But now to these pagan people who were steeped in all of these superstitions and, and worldly traditions, and here came something undeniably supernatural, something they couldn't just slough off and push away. We think today, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could do those things too and have those great miracles? But, brothers and sisters, we have now the Word of God. We have it written down. We have this objective here to compare anyone who comes, who, who preaches something, it's compared against this Word. And I'm so thankful we have this Word. You know, there is, uh, I don't wish to uh, bound or limit God in any way. He can do miracles now just as well as He did then. But in some sense, we, we don't need those same sort of confirmations of uh, supernatural things as we have here, the, the written word of God. We, ought, we think, maybe, would it be nice if I could do some miracles? Well, that would convince people. But it's so interesting how he refers. He says, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience. So that tells me that this, it wasn't just Paul doing some great, some easy miracle, and there I did something amazing, and it was brought in all patience. There was a perseverance involved in this. There was spiritual warfare involved in this. This was something that it wasn't just some magician's trick, or it was led by the Spirit, according to uh, um, God's working in His heart, as as God directed. I don't think it was a light thing or an easy thing, and it certainly wasn't something Paul could do for his own convenience, as we read in some of the other scriptures. He had sick companions, etc. Him himself, he also, he had that thorn in the flesh. Paul had done some amazing supernatural things in the midst in Corinth, and this was part of the sign of a true apostle, as we, as was mentioned this morning. I don't think that their apostolic succession is, is, is a, a thing in scripture. This was for the establishment of the church. And the Corinthians should have acknowledged that. They should have acknowledged the truth of what he said. Not just, he did these miracles, but that he was, the point he was driving with them. And yet, they basically rejected him. We're giving, we're, we're pushing back against his apostleship. It's like us raising and loving children and them turning against us, rebelling against us. And that's really the language he uses here. Let's bring it home a little bit. Has the Lord done miracles in your life? Has he done things that no one else could, that are his mark, the mark of him? And yet so many times we rebel against his lordship. We want to go and do our own thing. We want to do what makes us feel good and, and, and what we think makes sense for our lives. And that's rebellion. 
When we get like that, we need a message very similar to the message Paul's going to tell the church here at the end, a message of love and of warning. It's beautiful how these things uh, twine together. He says, Behold, the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be burdensome to you, for I seek not yours but you. I'm really interested in you, in the, in the state of your souls. Not what you have, or what you can do for me, or how you can make me feel. Even what kind of money I can collect from you for the saints at Jerusalem. He says, that's not really what I'm about. All of that, chapters 8 and 9, was for your benefit. It was for the working of God in you. I'm not interested in any of these things around you and about you. I'm interested in you. And... That's the way I ought to be. That's the way you ought to be with others, isn't it? Not interested in what they can do for us, how they can make us feel, but interested in them, in the state of their souls, how they walk with the Lord. And we think, oh, that's, that's prying a bit. That's getting a little bit too personal. That's, uh, that's their own personal, it's between them and God. We often hear that expression, right? That's between him and God. Yes, every man will stand before the Lord and give an account to him. No one else will do it for him. But the love of Christ cares. It really does care about your relationship with God. And that's really where, you know, Paul, that's where his heart was. You know, he wasn't interested in posterity, you know, like... I don't think when he wrote these, he was thinking, well, these are going to be preserved or, or, or my name, uh, people are going to be talking about me 2,000 years later. That was not it at all. That's not what he thought about. It was because he had these children in Corinth, these spiritual children, he said, you have many instructors, but you have not many fathers, but through the gospel I have borne you in 1 Corinthians. It's because he had these children and he feared for them. He was worried for them where they were going that he wrote these things, that he, he was pushed in this way. How did Paul seek them? He gives some, some examples, some, some evidence to them of, of, of that he was interested in them and not what they had. He was interested in them as people in their souls. He says, I am willing, I will very gladly spend and be spent. And I love that expression, the, the, the phrase there, spend and be spent for you. And to me, that means I'll give what I have, whatever's in my possession, whatever the Lord's given me, time, uh, money, whatever, I will spend it and I will be spent, which is even deeper, even more. He says, I'm going to be spent for you. My very self is going to be poured out for you. That's how I'm going to seek you. That's the type of love that God has for you through Christ Jesus, and I'm entering into the same love for you. Brother and sister, that's the same love we need for others, for those that are lost. It's not the type of love that says, okay, this is my, this is my limit. This is how far I've gone. That's enough. I've done enough. It says, I will spend and be spent for you. And even as he says that in such a, such a, a loving, grand statement, he, 
he qualifies, he doesn't qualify it. He says, but I know, I'm worried about your heart. He says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. I'm willing to, to pour myself out for you, but I'm concerned for your heart where you are at. That this does not seem to be reciprocal, that we are not, um, there is not a healthy love relationship here as you push against me as, as in my, and my apostolic authority. So he says, I'm willing to spend and be spent for you. This is the, the type of love I have for you. And then he takes a little, it seems like a digression here in verses 17, 18, 19. Or 16, 17, 18, I should say. But he's doing it to clear the air. He just wants to make 100% certain here that, that there's no misunderstanding or distrust here that I'm not being dishonest with you. And even the people that I sent with you, it's not like we're going to take this money that you're collected for the saints at Jerusalem and put it in our pockets no we're all of the same titus has the same spirit we walk in the same steps i'm not trying to make a gain of you in anything and then in verse 19 he says and all of this i'm saying not as it were to excuse or defend myself to you he says you guys aren't the final arbiters in any way i'm speaking all of these things before god we speak before god in christ that's what really matters. So the spending and being spent and the love and the pouring out for others, ultimately it is directed to God. It's in the sight of God in Christ. And that is the only way that things can really be edifying. We do all things, dearly beloved, for your edifying. It's so instructive. It's so, I'm so glad that this is preserved, this kind of interaction that Paul writes with this church, you know, you can tell the churches where there was a lot of difficulty and others where maybe not so much. I'm so thankful that this church, I mean, not, not it's the redemptive power of Christ, really. That's what's really at work here. You know, all these problems in Corinth and all these horrible problems, you read this last verse that we read, not nice, not good. But in all these problems, God was able to use that and Paul's interaction, his pursuit, his love for them to work what we read now and to see, oh, this is how it has to be. This is how we have to interact because let's not sugarcoat things. We have the same tendency. We have the same, uh, the same dangers are there. Let's not fool ourselves or think that we are so much better than them that are in Corinth. That we don't need these types of warnings. That we could not just as easily be susceptible to debates, envyings, wraths. There's a whole list here. The evil one, as we heard this morning, the evil one is just ready. Every time there is a good work, every time there is a good prompting, there is... The evil one knows there is spiritual warfare going on. And I see actually in this, it's an interesting sort of sequence even. You know, this debates. It could be quarrels, you know, issues that arise. You know, particular focused on the issue. And there's a disagreement. It starts as a disagreement, and yet it's, it's, it's a point of friction and it grows. And it's not, you know, the Holy Spirit is not working there because this, this heat is growing. So debates 
and envyings, these, these jealousies that, that result from this, and wrath, so angry outbursts that happen. And then hostility sets in, you know, where there's this, this continual animosity between two parties. And then in that whole scenario, the undercurrent of backbitings, slandering, whisperings, gossip, swellings, which is conceit, you know, as, as we start, start to look at the other, as that division grows and hardens, we get puffed up. And then the last thing here is this tumults, you know, it all breaks out in this disorder and this, this, this chaos, which is totally antithetical to the church of Christ, how it ought to operate. And Paul says, I'm afraid if, if you don't do something, if you don't respond to this letter that I'm writing to you now, the whole church responds, I'm afraid this is what's going to happen, that when I come, I'm going to find you in a way that I don't, I didn't want to find you, and you are going to find me in a way that you didn't want. And he's going to spell that out a little bit more in the next chapter, but Paul's going to use his authority. He's given them plenty of space. He had a, a painful visit already, but if need be, he is going to deal with sin. That's really what it comes down to here, the presence of sin. In both in this interaction with each other and then just in, in outright uh, uncleanness, fornication, lasciviousness in this last uh, verse here, just things that we don't even want to talk about too much, but they are a reality. They're a reality in our society. They were a reality in the society back then, and they need to be combated because it's, it's, these things are all linked. They're linked to each other. There can be no true peace no true harmony in the church in the presence of ongoing sin, sin that festers, that is not dealt with, that is not, that is not, uh, you know, it's, it's, it comes back to this thing that, well, everyone's got his own walk with the Lord, and no, the meeting place is Jesus Christ, his spirit, and if we are snared and trapped in sin as, as, as believers, that meeting place is not there. We can't meet with brothers and sisters spiritually. We're ensnared. We need to get that help from each other. It needs to be dealt with. This is a message of love and a warning that Apostle Paul gives to the, the Corinth, the church at Corinth at the end. It needs to be heard, but it's all in the context of this whole epistle that we heard, the glorious promises. I think we have to ask ourselves in closing, where do we stand in this? Are we on the side of the Corinthians in the sense of are we whiny and childish and, 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 and snared in sensuality and, and not um, an, an opposing authority, really? Or are we going to enter into the spirit that Paul displayed of real love, real love of spending and being spent, of, of pouring ourselves out, of bearing with each other and bearing with a, a world outside that uh, does not even know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the, 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 the strong contrast I see here. It's all in Christ. That's the beauty. That's the, that's the theme that, that keeps coming back in all of Paul's writings. And, and as we heard this morning, it all is building upon the things that Jesus said, the things that he did, it all is in Christ. 
I pray that he would be glorified in all this, that he would be, we would be a clearer and clearer reflection of him in our individual walks, in our collective walks, and we know those two things are linked. They are linked so much. May we do all things for our edifying, for each other's edifying, to build each other up and to spread that glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me just read that last verse again. Because the brother said in his prayer, Paul's desperate tone, and I really think, listen to it. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me. He didn't say, will humble you. He said, will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already. This is how invested Paul is in this church. He says, this is going to be my, this, this is the state of my heart, and I pray that it doesn't happen this way, that when I come again, God humbles me among you because of the state of your sin. That's how connected he is with these people. He says that I'll bewail. This morning was said, the individual names that are recorded, and I'm so thankful for them. You think Epaphras and Tychicus and these others that were, that were, um, went to Paul and went back to their home churches and accompanied him. And that was the same thing in Corinth. And there was, there was individuals. This is a church of individuals. There was uh, Crispus, I think, who was the leader of the synagogue and converted to become a Christian. There was Justice who lived by the synagogue, a Gentile. There was even Sosthenes who was in the, in the first, I don't know if you remember in Acts 18, I think it's 18, where... where um, they were, the Jews thought they were going to get Paul, and they took him before the civil authorities, and the civil authorities says, we don't care about this. This is a Jewish matter. And they beat Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. I assume that's the same person who then writes 1 Corinthians, or, or is, is mentioned with, in 1 Corinthians as Paul and Sosthenes, our brother. This is the church that was at Corinth. House of Stephanus, house of Chloe, individuals. This is our church. The individuals that, that the Lord knows each one by name. We know each one by name, and yet we are bound together, and, and we are invested in each other. Paul was definitely invested in that church. Same for us. We're not nameless individuals. Come and go as you please. That doesn't matter too much. Oh, each one by name. This is the promise, the joy, the weight of the gospel the call that we've been called to, to have that kind of love with each other and to extend that so that as other people come in contact with this, they can be known by name too and join in this story with us and be recorded, not in the Bible here, but in the book of life. May God grant us that grace to live that way this coming week. That we dismiss you.